You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. One of the toughest challenges facing artists of all disciplines is how do you price your work? How do you turn your passion for your chosen art form into a viable proposition that not only generates an income for you, but also creates an experience and evokes a response from others? Making art that feeds your soul and making money that feeds your family can seem like a game of tug and war. But if you truly want to work with your passion, then applying your creativity to opportunities and becoming an arts entrepreneur is at the heart of success. Arts entrepreneurship is something that links both segments of the show today. Later in the show, author, chef and businesswoman Nina Mukherjee first and will be stopping in to talk about her writing and her new non-profit arts business, Arto Weavers, which looks to support women's heritage artisan weaving works. My first guests live in the world of film, television and digital media. Each one is an independent filmmaker, but they each also work collectively and are part of the upcoming Como Show. Film Showcase, which takes place next weekend. Matt Schacht is the owner of Peace Frame Productions, which is part business and part artist collective. Lizzie German is an independent film writer, director, and sometimes actor. And Chase Thompson leads a triple life as an associate professor at Stevens College, a photographer, and a filmmaker who co-directed the documentary Zelensky back in 2011. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Speaking the Arts. Hey, Diana. Hello. So I'm curious about how you feel about that an easy relationship between being an artist and making money. Matt, you run a business where you have a very definite business side, videoing weddings, making commercials, and a side which also nourishes your inner artist. What are your thoughts about that combination, being an arts entrepreneur? Well, it can seem very difficult, but if you approach your art as a trade, usually there are commercial applications for every art. And if you figure out what those are in your community and then you meet the right people, you can pretty much do what you love to do. And it it may not be purely creative. You may be working in a marketing basis. You might be trying to sell a product or push a message or make somebody's wedding just look really beautiful, regardless of whether it was or not. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a lot of creativity still in the business side. Yeah. Yeah. So your name comes up a lot, Matt. You're one of the founders of the Midwest VidFest Showcase, which was on a couple of years ago. You're linked with the revival of Cat TV, and now you're one of the key players behind the Como Shorts Showcase. Where does your heart lie? My heart lies in storytelling. And so I find that pretty much any time I'm doing something that connects stories to people, it's pretty gratifying. And Chase, you're definitely a storyteller too. That's at the heart of what you do, right? Yeah, definitely. But also to the point about getting paid, um, I, I feel like that's something artists get taken advantage of a lot. So at Stevens, I teach my students, we have to like draw a line. And I think that's awesome what Matt's doing and people like this because... I don't know. I just feel like it's like, oh, it's your art. It's your passion. You're going to do it for free anyways. Mm-hmm. We, if we keep giving away our best selves for free, we're going to keep getting taken advantage of. And it's just like with the illusion of, well, I'll give you some exposure or stuff like that. It's just like you wouldn't do that with any other trade. Be like, hey, 
yeah, come fix my toilet and I'll tell everybody and uh, right. give you some exposure. You know what I mean? It's just a crazy concept to me that artists get taken advantage of like this. So I, I try and make sure that we set boundaries. Uh, I teach my photographers and my filmmakers this, and uh, it's been working. Uh, I think it's a, it's a slow, you know, big wheels move slow, but I think we're going to start to change that a little bit by little bit, but just by not doing things for free and not forgetting about the barter system. Like some, if they want something from you, there's a good chance that they have something you need and meeting the right people like Matt's saying and talking to them be like hey yeah that's great like you're a graphic designer I need a logo for my business let's work out the hourly trade here and we can all make it work so there's ways around this money problem I love that you're teaching students there because when I ran the art league I'd see that all the time the artists I felt were being taken advantage of you know donate a work to to this event and you'll get exposure and it's like well well there's nothing really mm-hmm. in it for them they won't sell more work they no. can't claim it as a tax benefit because you can only claim the materials exactly. so there's no value attached to it and uh, and there were so many events going on all the time and I, I get calls every week from organizations saying could you ask the artist to donate work so I would say no I'm not I'm not going to ask them because it's not a good deal for them and and also as a business if every event you go to you can buy cut price art because it's in an auction why would you ever go to a gallery and buy it exactly Lizzie tell me about life as an independent filmmaker how do you make rent every month not through that mm-hmm. <laughs> what I'm doing and what a lot of people Um, I've recently moved from Los Angeles after being here for most of my life. And what most people are doing out there is working a day job of some kind and then doing a side hustle. And the side hustle is writing scripts or making films. And uh, we don't get paid to do that. And there's (laughs) not, no, and it's very hard to find funding for it. I mean, the money is just not super present because there's so many of us right so we're all working at agencies or not there at as a barista whatever you need to do and then doing these projects in the hours between when you get home and when you go to bed and then on the weekends just to be frank <laughs> so is it just being in the right place at the right time in terms yeah. of how you make money yes. from it yeah so you have an mfa in writing and producing for television from loyola marymount mm-hmm. university in la what did you learn about the business side of working in film did they teach you that like how to how to hustle how to hustle you learn a lot of that from hustling <laughs> from having to do it the program I was in was wonderful because we produced a lot of scripts and we had people who were really good at reading scripts read our scripts and tell us what was up but you do learn about the uh the business from being in the business and getting your first job and figuring out that well yeah a lot of um succeeding is is knowing somebody who can get you a job and or being positioned for a job when there's an opening for it and i hate that i am contributing to the idea that hollywood is only nepotism and and who you know but to an extent that it It is is. and so so helps to be entrepreneurial and like go after what you want to do like if no someone's not giving you a job as a director figure out an opportunity, write your own thing, shoot it on an iPhone, and you're probably not going to make money. You're not going to make money. You're going to spend money. Right. Um, and it also helps to have friends who are like, I also, if you're you're a writer, you find a director and a DP, you know, you you go out and you find people who want to to help you make your art because like this barter system is really important. Like, well, it's also for their reel. Mm-hmm. Like, right, it's yeah. also important for a cinematographer to have 
things that they can show for for them to get hopefully paid work Mm -hmm. right so you to put your team together yeah and Mm -hmm. then have that core team hopefully to make stuff and then one day if you're really lucky (laughs) someone will pay you to make a music video or something right yeah chase do you you give advice you give to young filmmakers at stevens college particularly because they're predominantly women and Mm -hmm. it's a really male dominated world how do you prepare them for life in film man i i honestly I'm very privileged to work with just a really dynamic group of people that don't really, they're blind to a lot of limitations, which I love that. They're going to go out and do it. And so either, you know, be a part of my wake or, you know, get on my team. So I like that. And they'll go out and kind of what Lizzie's saying too, it's just like, if there's not something exactly or something that I'm interested in wanting to get into or evolve into, like, I'll just make my own. And that comes back to that entrepreneurship Mm. so yeah i I also say like find a gap and fill it that's one of the best advice pieces i've ever heard was look out there find out what's missing in this society or what's missing in this genre of film you're interesting uh, interested in and fill that gap and in that process of filling that gap you're going to meet people that are like-minded and there's not going to be as much of that me versus you and it's going to be much more us and you know, that's kind of like what we're experiencing in the Columbia independent scene here and film scene, like what Matt and Melissa Lewis is doing and everybody showcasing like, hey, we have great talent and great work here. So right. let's show it off. So Como Shorts is a short film showcase for Missouri filmmakers, whether they're students, professionals or amateurs with a passion. Matt, tell me how Como Shorts came about. Well, Como Shorts came about with a prior film festival called the Vidwest Music Video Film Festival. It was a hugely ambitious three-day festival built around music videos, uh, started by Melissa Lewis, a former student of Chase's. And it was a wonderful event, but it was impossible to do as volunteers. So we wanted to continue to do a local filmmaker showcase, and we wanted to do something that was going to focus on Missouri filmmakers, because being in Columbia, Missouri, I feel like you need to bring your community really tight, because the coasts call us flyover country, and in a sense, we have to prove them wrong by Mm -hmm. showing them what we can do. (laughs) So when we set out to do a, a, a second event and something that we could afford to do annually, we came up with the Como Shorts Showcase. And the only rules for the showcase is that you have to be a Missouri filmmaker and have significant roots to the state or you have had made your film in the state. And based on that, you know, the first year we were able to get uh, enough submissions in just two or three months to fill out the showcase with some strong films. And when we did the event at Fretboard Coffee, we sold out every show. So this is our second, second annual showcase. We had three times as many submissions this year. Our show length increased by about 75%. So we have almost two hours of content, a feature length film, and uh, our venue's capacity has also doubled. So we're really looking forward to what the future holds. So why go with shorts and not Missouri filmmakers making longer films? Well, longer films are more expensive, they're harder to make, and typically they require veteran filmmakers who have already evolved to the point where they can tell really compelling stories. If we went that route, um, we'd be making more work for ourselves just trying to find that content. And I think that we would also be competing then with a lot of other film festivals in the world who want those feature films. Feature films are prized, they're coveted by filmmakers. Feature films can make money, they can be distributed a lot easier than shorts. And so 
we felt like we wanted to be tapping into the filmmakers who were evolving to feature films. We wanted to create the communities of folks who were going to come together to make next year's feature films. And so Como Shorts is a way for us to do that. The application for this year is closed at this point, but what is the process for applying? How do you, you choose the filmmakers that you show this year out of all the submissions that you had? Well, it's really simple. We, uh, we say that the submissions are open on all our social media and on our website. We try to get the word out. And then anybody can go to our website, uh, send us a link to a film as, along with their information and a brief description. And then a panel of local judges will review the films and make their selections. And what were you looking for? Uh, what were the judges looking yeah. for? Mm, I mean, they, they each are individuals and they all have their tastes, uh, but together they try to make a group decision based on the quality of the films and how well they'll fit into the lineup. I'll say too that what your website, you're always, I look at a lot of film festivals and see their websites and the comoshorts.com website is Excellent. Who made that, man? That's- <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. So the website's had some love from several people, but our main architect is Megan Cassidy. Mm. Man, Megan, okay. well done. Good job, yeah. Megan. I love that site. So easy to submit. It's and true. It's true. It, You're not just saying that. No, it, it was nice on all my browsers and even on my phone. Um, my students were impressed, too, uh, which I thought was a good sign because they go through a lot of this media as well. Um, the pitch competition thing too I think is really interesting and uh, just I don't know really nice website nice job guys so Lizzie <laughs> you're you're one of the 12 filmmakers featured this year in the showcase tell us about your 20 minute short called Crescendo sure um, it's about a young woman who is um, studying opera performance in graduate school and um, she is hiding an eating disorder that's affecting her performance and her ability to sing that stems from a traumatic experience and it's about her beginning to deal with that event that she's repressed. How tough is it to take a story and make it into a short? I mean, was was there more on the cutting room floor than there was in the final movie? I guess you have to film a lot to make 20 minutes. You know, I know that that is certainly true of feature films, but when you're running on a really tight schedule and a tight budget, we don't film things that we don't use almost ever. So what we sh- what we shot in a super tight period is is, is what you're seeing. And Chase, you have got a, a pilot for a comedy about mm-hmm. a pilot. Yeah. <laughs> so your piece is called Tamps and Air. Correct. Tell us more about it and, and where it's going from here. Yeah, so it started as kind of, uh, we were working on another film of mine forever ago, a short um, out on my folks' property and like super DIY, like we were camping. We just hauled in our own food, coolers, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We would shoot all day and then camp at night and we'd sit around the fire and we were just uh, people that were working on the film had been flying in from you know a few places and we were all just talking about how sucky our airport experience was <laughs> and we were just like what were some of your worst airport stories <laughs> and it just kind of stemmed from that and it was just kind of like well what if like the dark web had its own airline <laughs> and it just kind of joking around like what are all the security things that are just you know for show and all this stuff and it just a google doc was started and <laughs> lists of jokes came and then it just kind of fell out of there at at point and so when the opportunity to make it at the uh, Stevens Film Institute came up uh, I was figuring out which would be the one that would inspire the students the most get them the most uh, experience on location in the studio and then you know I've always wanted to play with models and you know so we shot a bunch of our model stuff in like 148 scale so Mm -hmm. there's like a little 
childhood version of myself. It's like, <laughs> hey, someday you're going to be doing this. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, you're lying. <laughs> yeah, but no, it's true. It felt like I was making this tiny version of like a DIY Star Wars, and it was kind of fun uh, just to see everybody excited about it and where it's going from here. It's had a festival run. It, had, it got to play in uh, the New York Independent Film Festival, and it was really eye-opening. I think one of the things, too, and I, I'm proud of uh, Matt and Mel and everybody else for showcasing what we have here in Missouri, is when we were playing it in the showcase in New York, everyone else's pilots look the same. They have a hard time shooting in these public places, so they all of their stuff was like, their scenes were just like shot in like Ubers and cars. like. All, and or they would go somewhere to shoot and there was already someone else shooting a film there and they're like damn my location's boilerplate generic here mm-hmm. and so and then here we are with a real DC plane you know what I mean we're like we have a we have a large plane that we found out in Vichy Missouri that we used we have studios we have models and it just looked otherworldly compared to what they were doing they were coming up to me like how'd you get a plane how'd you do all this i was like man it's missouri man like, <laughs> like you don't have a plane guy <laughs> just like, it was just uh yeah i was just and then i came back from there completely recharged and refreshed with a a new scope and uh respect gratitude and appreciation for what we have here so what we see in the showcase is the pilot for it. How, yes. how much of the rest of the movie has been made? Uh, this is just uh, this is a one. This kind of like a proof of concept in some ways. Um, I would like to make more. I've got other episodes. I've got like a full season kind of figured out, like um, where it would go from here. You know, I like the British model. Six episodes, really good. So going for quality, and um, so I would like to see the whole thing made eventually. But yeah, right now, until like I said, I, I, I'm. I'm much more into the storytelling, like Matt was saying. I'm going to be focusing on writing and things like this. And if you're listening and, yeah, you want to take a peek and you know somebody, maybe out in L.A. because you got to know somebody, yeah, <laughs> I'll send you the link. Uh, but, yeah, I, just, I don't want to put too much energy to just keep trying to find someone to do this. I'd rather just, I don't know, it's not my style. I don't know. I need an agent or Sell something. Sell the concept you know? yeah. on to somebody else. Yeah, I've, I got it this far. Someone else helped me out. I'm ready to move <laughs> on back to the drawing board and do something new. Matt, what happens to all of these shorts after the festival? What's, what's an onward life for a short? Uh, shorts can live in many places. Like Chase just described, they can do a festival circuit. Some of the shorts are part of YouTube channels. So some of the films that you'll see have been part of YouTube channels and have been part of a band releasing a music video, or one is actually from a gamer fantasy channel, and the short film is a, about a video game. So short films can end up in a lot of places. Hopefully the place they don't end up is collecting dust on somebody's hard drive on a computer and never seeing the light of day. That is, unfortunately, a lot of filmmakers who start off with a lot of energy can end up in that place, and so we want to make sure that they get their films out there. But how do they make money from this? I mean, even if it goes up on YouTube, do you get a do you get any money for a, a viewing? Well, I'm not a an expert on how you monetize videos on YouTube, but my understanding is yes, if you can get a million views on your YouTube video, you could make some money. Yeah, and the main thing is subscriptions too. Like you want to get a thousand subscriptions. So, so I, we went out to the in LA. We went to the the YouTube. Uh, facility out there and they were there they have lists of all these mile markers that you have to hit and so subscribers are really what you want because mm. after that you can get access to the YouTube facilities so you can go out there and use their studios and stuff after a thousand subscribers you get 10,000 and then you move on to the next wow so there's there's layers there and it's yeah it's all out there you can look it up I've never heard of anyone um 
I could be wrong, but making like that, like getting subscribers off of short work though, that's like a different, yeah. I would say genre of media, mostly right. like lifestyle yeah, you need bloggers to, you and need to putting out a video a week, every single yeah. week, m multiple times a week. I mean, honestly, the landscape of media right now is very, very interesting, but it's, um, it's so diverse that you you need to have like a PhD almost and and understanding like how what can I how can I make money like the way to make money off of short films there's basically no distribution for it basically doesn't yeah. exist um, what you can hope to do is um, use it as experience and maybe like a proof of concept or something maybe someone will give you some money so that you can make a feature film and maybe then you can sell that it is track. like the golden age of content too you keep hearing about Amazon and Netflix just throwing out ungodly amounts of money for new content because that's our thing it's just like right. more 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 mm -hmm. yeah so I'd like to figure out how to break into that but I, uh, there are things like the uh, uh, out in Malibu and things like that pitch fest and things like that where they'll buy your ideas and it may get made or it may not and things like this um, I don't know there's there's no that's the other thing I'm trying to you talked about my students earlier about how do you, what do you tell them prepare them for this it's just like really hard because uh, there is no clear path. It's yeah. not like you graduate and now you're a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. You know, it's right. just like you have to carve out your own path. You have to find the right people. You have to figure out what your interests are. And yeah. So. Everyone's experience is wildly different from the next person, even though you graduate from the same school. Like, that's what's so hard about, I think, being an instructor. Mm -hmm. And that's why you can only tell them so much. Like, generally, this is how this works. But. Mm -hmm. You, yeah. it's, it's, it would be misleading to say like, you are going to get this job <laughs> after school and then it will lead to this. Like yeah. if you do that, that's, that's dishonest. Right, just basically here's the best, we know the information yes. you need to know. Mm -hmm. And then once you have these tools, figure out how to you gotta, carve your yeah, own. Run, yeah, yeah, exactly. So Matt, there are events on Friday, Saturday and Sunday next weekend at Talking Horse Theater. Talk us through the Como Shorts weekend. What are the mechanics of it? Each showcase starts off with uh, live music by local musicians. Each screening will have its own signature events. On Friday, there's going to be a live pitch contest before the screenings. This is where three filmmakers who've submitted their pitches ahead of time and have been selected from a pool will get up in front of a live audience, and for three minutes, they'll have a chance to pitch a film they have not yet made. The audience will then have little vote counters, and we'll pass around a hat. <laughs> Love this idea. They'll, <laughs> yeah, right. they'll, they'll put the tickets in the hat. We'll count them up at the end of the showcase and then the w winning film pitch will get about $2,500 worth of resources to make their film in the next year. Wow. Are these mm. people that are already in the showcase or are the three people chosen to pitch are not people whose films we'll see in the showcase? Well, we did not have any limits about whether or not you could be in the showcase and also be in the film pitch. So the film pitch submission process was completely separate and independent. Oh. Uh, and our judges went through that and made their selections based on the quality of the film pitches. Okay, so that's that's only on Friday night, though. That's, that's Friday night. Uh, Saturday night, we'll have an after party at Dogmaster Distillery, which is right next door to Talking House Theater. And then on uh, Sunday night, Sunday night will be our laid-back show. It'll be a matinee, good for families, super chill. And we'll have an extended period for Q&As for anybody who wants to stay longer in the afternoon. Now, each, each session, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, you're showing the same film. So really, you only need to go get a ticket for one of the sessions. I mean, right? the films are so great, you might <laughs> want to come back for two, but that's, yeah, that's true. We're going to be doing the same three shows each day, and that's to give everyone an opportunity to see the films, uh, regardless of their schedule. Right, okay, but there's different live music each session. 
uh, Friday, Saturday and Sunday there are different musicians playing. Yeah, so you might want to just come out and support one of your favourite <laughs> local musicians. So if we go on Friday night and we watch the pitch process, as an audience, what should we be looking for? In a film pitch? Yeah. First and foremost, you should be looking for a great story, something that moves you and excites you and make you want to be part of that project mm -hmm. if you were a filmmaker. I would also be looking for realism, somebody who can convey how they would make the film and whether or not it's within their reach. And then you might also think about who you're looking at and what their life experience is. And if somebody's writing a story that they know nothing about, it could be an excellent story, but they may not be the right person to tell it. So there's a lot of things you can look at. But, you know, at the end of the day, you don't have to give them any money. You're just going to put a little ticket into a hat. <laughs> so you just do your best job, <laughs> vote for what you like, and then we'll sort it all out. What are your hopes for the film festival going forward? If you could jump forward 10 years, what do you hope Como Shorts showcases become? Well, we started off this discussion about making sure artists are paid for their labor, and I think uh, my end goal would be to see that Como Shorts continues to provide a local community film scene, and that all the volunteers who support it are able to basically pay their bills so that their labor is, is provided for, because I think that's incredibly difficult when you do an event that's based on all volunteer effort. Will you guys have like a donation thing just like so someone can drop cash or like a little Venmo or something like that? Like I would love to see that at some of these places because I would like to, yeah, encourage people to cough up some money. <laughs> we're, we're, not, uh, we're not quite ready to accept donations for VidWest yet. We're actually building our website. We just got incorporated and became a nonprofit in March of 2019. Congratulations. But as soon as we are online, we'll have the ability to accept donations through our website. And VidWest is the organizing body for the Como Shorts Film Showcase. Right. So as an event, it's not a non-profit, but the organizing body is a not-for-profit. Right. Well, thank you so much to my first act guest today, who have been filmmakers Matt Schacht, Lizzie German, and Chase Thompson. The second annual Como Shorts Film Showcase opens at Talking Horse Theatre next Friday and runs through the weekend. You can find out more and buy tickets at comoshorts.com. Tickets cost $10 in advance or $12 on the door. And each day there's something slightly different going on at each session. Thank you so much, Matt, Lizzie, and Chase. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Yeah. See y'all there. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be chatting to Nina Mukherjee first an hour about her new project, Artu Weavers, which supports women's heritage artisan work in Bengal. Stay close to your radios. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. Nina Mukherjee Firstenau lives in that intersectional space in the Venn diagram where arts meets entrepreneurship. She's been a trade magazine writer and run her own publishing business, run an art gallery, and has taught food writing. She's the award-winning author of Biting Through the Skin, an Indian kitchen in America's heartland, which won the hugely prestigious and competitive Grand Prize for Excellence in Writing from Les Dames d'Escoffières International in 2014. And she also wrote Savor Missouri, River Hills Country Food and Wine, and has additionally authored numerous essays and articles. She writes poetry and her beautifully evocative prose about food, travel and culture has been described as lush and lyrical and beautiful and sensitive. Nina is also an incredible chef of Indian cuisine and now has a new venture as the founder of Arta Weavers, which aims to support women's heritage artisan work by introducing global customers to handmade works that have been stitched, dyed and woven by women in villages, non-profit community groups and women-owned small enterprises in Bengal and beyond. It is a delight to welcome 
welcome the multi-talented and globally curious Nina Furston out of the show. Hello, Nina. Oh, hello. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> well, I can't believe it's taken us this long, but I guess you were away for a little while, I so was. I have an excuse. Now, I have to say I have been totally fascinated by you since we first met. I feel a strong kinship with you in that we have both lived and worked all over the world mm-hmm. and can find a home pretty much wherever we land. But where I have just ambled around the world working for other people and leaving no trace, you turn your creativity into opportunity wherever you are and you leave real things in your wake. Mm. Books, courses, companies. (laughs) And that is truly fascinating to me. Oh, well, I can't believe... First of all, I have to say, I don't think you leave no trace anywhere you go. (laughs) I have a feeling you make your mark in very warm and wonderful ways. (laughs) So let's go back to the very beginning. You were born in Bangkok, but your parents were both from India. And then as a very young child, you moved to rural Kansas. What are your memories of that time? Well, I have wonderful memories of rural Kansas and and Pittsburgh. Uh, Kansas is my hometown. Um, it's a beautiful place, beautiful people. And I know that um, Kansas isn't always known for its beauty, but I think when you grow up in an area that has that kind of a vista, wide and open and um, welcoming in so many ways, you know, you love it. So I have really wonderful memories of growing up in that area. But I mean, you were very young, so you don't really have any memories of before Kansas, do you? No, not really. Not not particularly. But um, we did go to India back and forth a few times while I was growing up. So I have those memories, but they came later. Definitely. Uh, your parents were pretty young. Your mum was in her early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, and having lived in Bangkok, I've lived in Bangkok, and you know the, the aromas of the crowds and the heat and the food are a perpetual kind of sensory overload. Mm-hmm. And rural Kansas is diametrically <laughs> opposed to that. There's it not is. really any smell of spices and there's not an overcrowding of people. So the contrast really could not be greater. I'm curious what your mum's recollections are of well, that Well, that time. would be a great conversation to have <laughs> with her. But I do know a little bit about it because I know I watched her when she was trying to cook foods from her homeland of Bengal. And uh, she had a difficult time finding anything that really she needed. You have to remember it was in the 60s in rural small town Kansas. The nearest Indian food stores were, they had one that was emerging in Kansas City, but Chicago was where everybody would get things. So if she needed cinnamon stick, which is kind of an important ingredient in a lot of Indian dishes, she would go to the 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 five and dime and this aisle that would have like oranges that you know, remember those crafts you would you would stick a cinnamon stick in an orange so they had bags of cinnamon stick there in that store for crafts not for cooking so she would use those but she made do in, a, in amazing ways um, she recreate recreated the taste of her homeland for us and just through ingenuity I think well and you have to also think about this she never cooked until she was married because in in that time uh, maybe even still for many families in India the, the young girls weren't cooking the mothers had help many times and so mom watched it being done. She knew how it was supposed to be tasting. And when they first moved out of India, she would write frantic letters back to my grandmother asking for this recipe or that recipe. And those recipes actually are what spawned the first notion I had of writing a book. Because she wrote from Thailand to India in 1960. 1960. And my grandmother sent back recipes. And they were the same recipes 
turns out, that I wrote down, not because I knew the story, but when I was leaving our home in Kansas for the Peace Corps, I wrote down five recipes, and they ended up being almost exactly the same five that my mother had gotten from her mother. So it's just this lineage of recipes being passed down because they're the comfort foods of your family, and they sort of identify who you are and what your place is in the world. I think we need to tell our kids that story, and sometimes you, if it's not verbally told, it's told through um, taste and sensory experiences through food many times. Do you remember what those recipes are? Oh, I do, yes. <laughs> and they're in the book. <laughs> and they're not hard, but, they're, but they're, uh, they're kind of straightforward, simple recipes because my mother was a beginning cook in Thailand and her mother sent her things she thought she could cook. Those are the ones that mom cooked in Pittsburgh, Kansas, as I was growing up because there was very little else available in the grocery stores at that time. Well, let's have you read a little bit from Biting Through the Skin. It was almost impossible to choose a paragraph that (laughs) I loved the most. But let's go with the description of how disparate your food choices were between your life at home and your life beyond the front door. Okay. Food rituals connected my disparate world. My mother's refrigerator had the makings for egg curry and vegetables. If I peeked into her cabinets, I'd find chickpea flour and whole wheat flour for roti, separated by a shelf from the all-purpose white. The outside world held the taste of melt-in-your-mouth grilled cheese sandwiches on white bread from the PX, a small sandwich grill and candy shop that we ate at lunchtime, sitting on the curb by Lakeside Junior High, our elbows bumping. The buttery sandwiches were pressed flat and left crumbs to lick off the corners of our lips. Pico, Pittsburgh Ice Cream Company, ice cream, plain vanilla or cherry or black cherry was ha- was a hands-down favorite, as was daylight donuts on Sundays. I would inevitably pick a white cake donut with coconut icing. My dad a bear claw, my brother a glazed long john, and my mother usually a cinnamon roll. We got 25-cent hamburgers with crunchy dill pickle slices at Griff's on 10th and Broadway, where my friend Beth worked for a time. We wiped our chins with paper napkins to catch the dribbles from the burgers, which were as large as a man's hand, at 1106 South Broadway, and called them 1106 Grease Burgers as a compliment. I love it. It's such a beautiful book. If you're just joining us, I'm talking to Nina Furstenau, and we're talking a little bit about her book, Biting Through the Skin, about being a transplant from the far, do we call it the far east, India? I guess it's kind of the middle to far east, and then living, growing up in Kansas in the 1960s. The first line of of the book, Biting Through the Skin, reads, I am always combusting something, (laughs) which is so concise, so thought-provoking, so curiosity-arousing. But tell me what you mean by that. Well, I'm really looking at several different levels of combustion. (laughs) One is internal. Whenever you eat something, your body is essentially, essentially is combusting the nutrients from the foods to make your body work. But I I also like that imagery when I think about making your way through anything in life, Uh, not necessarily in a negative combusting. um, You're not burning uh, the food. I'm not burning things down. Uh, But I do think that to make yourself grow, you you combust things that you think or you um, feel about the world, and then that progresses into new levels of understanding or seeing. And you seem to have spent your life moving through new progressions of seeing and understanding. After growing up in Kansas and riding your Schwinn bike around with occasional (laughs) trips back to Granny's house in India, in 1984 you joined the Peace Corps and left for two years in Tunisia, where you say you had many aha moments. Tell me about that time. 
Well, what I, I think it really affected me in so many levels, but one way that it affected what I have done since is that I saw people who were eating the same foods that they have eaten in that part of the world for centuries, and yet their kids were stunted. The men were about my height, and I'm not especially tall, and the women were shorter than that. Two kilometers away from where we lived were people in town with professions and educations and more money, and they ate differently, much more protein, probably better quality staples, um, and and they were, the men were 6'3". And so I, what I started being fascinated by was heritage recipes and foods and why certain spices were put together with certain foods because over time those things were always calibrated for the best optimal health. They were foods that were made and prepared by mothers over the centuries for sustaining their families. So something had changed because the food was no longer sustaining the families at the poorest levels of that society. And I think that's true around the world and that's where my interest in heritage recipes and foods and their link to agriculture really started. So something in, they ate a lot of wheat, uh, couscous, and they had a lot of breads. French colonized Tunisia early in their history, and and um, so they ate a lot of baguettes. And so a lot of the diet of the people that were not wealthy was wheat. So what had changed in that wheat? And if you think about, if you know much about wheat around the world, you might know that some of the ancient grains were no longer being raised. Some of the things that were considered really fine were probably being exported. And so the people at the baser, uh, sorry, at, I say base level of society, I don't mean that in a negative way, but people who could not afford uh, other foods were eating a lot of that lesser quality wheat. I say that in lesser in the nutri- nutritive sense. Right. So they were not getting the protein they needed. And flashing forward to the last decade, you've spent quite a lot of time working in Africa, working with USAID in both Ghana and Mozambique. Mozambique. Mm -hmm. And I love the project that you were working on in Mozambique. Tell me about that. So um, I worked in an area with other scholars, research social scientists primarily, in an area that was very near Zimbabwe. So we're in the mountains. Mozambique is a gorgeous country, especially along the coast. Actually, all of it. I just found drop-dead gorgeous. We were in the rural uh, area, kind of in the hills. Worked with a village, especially worked with a village, one village of uh, where I cooked with the women to find out what their heritage recipes, their comfort foods were, and then analyze what they were eating to see what kind of protein they were and other nutrients they were getting in the foods. This is an area that has over 40% stunting rates. So the kids are mentally and physically stunted and they never grow to the point where they can contribute back to their communities in the way that you would hope any child would be able to do. So the parents, of course, were very interested in what could be done to stop that sort of problem. They were feeding the kids their foods, their favorite foods, the ones that they had always sustained their families, as I mentioned about the Tunisian uh, diet. So why wasn't it working? So, you know, if the soils are depleted to the point where there's not much activity going on, it's not alive any longer, then the plants that grow in that soil do not have the same micronutrients that it used to have. So I think that's the crux of the problem there. So my part of the much larger project was to, um, if you're working with a population of illiterate Uh, uneducated women who are very intelligent and really interested in their families and hardworking. How do you get them the information that all these wonderful science projects are creating beautiful information that would save lives and turn around 
uh, health, and yet it wasn't in a format that these ladies could access. So my project was kind of uh, on the ground. We we cooked over open fires the way they always cook. They're experts at creating the right heat and temperature, and they're just amazingly efficient at, at work. But I didn't want to come in and say, here, you need to do this. I wanted to see what they were doing, see what the food was providing, and then maybe tweaking those recipes and asking if they still like the taste. So that's what we did. We added different beans and various things to recipes that they were already cooking and knew by heart. And they tasted it, and they were so gracious to me. They tasted my recipes and would say, oh, you did a fine job, Nina. Thank you for sharing that with us. And, and I you loved were, it. you were working in one village, mm-hmm. but then you wanted this, this project to go further. So you worked on creating a book that was very picture-orientated on very how much. to create these recipes. Right, and I'm sorry I got off track there because that was the main thing. I took a st- – and, and uh, Allison Smythe here in Columbia, Missouri went with me, and we took – photographs step-by-step of each recipe Um, and if you think about how that is that was a learning process too because if you say uh, a teaspoon of salt it's easy to show a teaspoon of salt but they don't really use teaspoons there so you have to kind of show it in the palm of a hand with a teaspoon next to it and then show it being poured into a pot and it has to be a pot that's familiar so we needed to use their kinds of kitchen utensils over their type of uh, fire Um, if it was on a stove in Missouri it wouldn't make it wouldn't be familiar it wouldn't feel like it was applying to them so we wanted to use their faces their tools their uh, experience of life and if you think about most of these families are not in an area where they see their images of their own food story being celebrated they see a lot of western food uh, images maybe if they go into a city or you know if they have access online uh, and it's always very happy. People are smiling and happy, and they're eating these delicious foods, and they don't look anything like them, and the foods don't look anything like what they eat. So for them to see this, these images alone was, very, I think, very powerful because they had not really seen their own story being celebrated like that. And, and also in, in giving them access to better nutrients and better, better protein food, and then they could go away and they could sell these small snacks yes. to other people. So then they're making money and mm-hmm. they're empowering their own families and their own small community. How did that sit with the men? Oh, they loved it. <laughs> they loved it and were very supportive. Actually, I just found the whole community delightful. But, uh, but the women really were interested in having an income generation process Project, and they love doing it through food because that is their uh, domain in that area and in that part of the world especially perhaps. And they are familiar with how to get things done. They work well together. They were very happy to cooperate with each other to make the food, split the money. Uh, they, you know, uh, one thing that was just a wonderful experience for me is I had a group of people to our farm here in Missouri that we cooked the, I cooked the stews that these ladies made uh, every day for their families and um, asked for donations and we were able to send them enough so they could buy a hand grinder and strainer so they could make these biscuits much more efficiently and I took the picture of the people who came to my house that day to Mozambique with me the next time I went and showed the ladies here are the people who got this hand grinder for you and they saw and they were thrilled they were just thrilled and they also I guess I have to say they they really loved the fact they were eating their food we were eating their food 
I think I was there that night. You were. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that image, to, I'll always remember, they just were, they were just really sweet and, and sweetly touched by the fact not only that women in this, and most we had men there too, but uh, a group of people here in Missouri were interested enough in them that they would help them in this way. But what really just put them over the top was that they saw that we were eating their stew. And they just thought, wow, you know, that I, it just really made them happy. So we flash forward to 2018, and you won a Fulbright Nehru Global Scholar Grant to India to research a book about Bengali cuisine, which is where your family is from, mm-hmm. um, but never one to overlook an opportunity. <laughs> you also use that time to set up a project that supports women's heritage artisan work. How did that like, come about? The artisan work came about partly due to my experience in the Peace Corps, because when I was there, I was doing a rug weaving project. And I noticed how the stories of that region were pat- were actually being told through the weaving, and that the mothers were teaching the daughters, for who were then teaching their daughters, these patterns. And so it was an age-old, mostly women-centric uh, craft. It was sometimes the only income that these families had because these ladies would weave these rugs on the side as they were doing all their other work for the family and cooking and taking care of the children and so forth. Um, They would sell the rugs. So I got very interested in uh, fabrics and textiles. I probably always had that interest, but um, I got it reinforced a great deal when I saw the women's enterprise that it could support. I also really like the idea of not having these traditional patterns and styles of working die. Uh, they hold communities together. The women work together. They, ex- you know, explain each other's patterns to each other. They, it's a, it's a very centering uh, activity for many groups. And in India, every region and even within regions, several uh, different types of traditional crafts are have been performed for many centuries, and they're just beautiful, and you hardly ever see them in this country. And so when I was in India on the Fulbright, I got to go out into the villages. I met these ladies. I saw their fabrics and their work. And I also became aware that they're dying out because they're not being supported. They don't get the work sold in big markets, and then their daughters may not see a future for themselves doing that. And I just... Uh, wanted to see if I could aid in any way. And it's a small idea, really. I'm buying from them <laughs> and selling. And if uh, it continues, I'd like to make it a nonprofit. It does not, to me, have to be India. It could be anywhere in the world. Uh, anytime there's a traditional weaving, embroidery, textile project, I'd like to support it if we could. And you've set that up on Etsy so people can go online and buy them. What has the response been so far? You know, it, I think it's been pretty good. I, I got enough response to make me dangerous, I guess, because I just <laughs> continued with it. Um, it uh, I would say a, a moderately successful first year. Of course, we could use more exposure. It's not something I'm doing full time, so that's part partly at, at its time I need to um, maybe do some more marketing on it. So people outside this area and who know me are more aware of it. But what I noticed in the fall is that had started to happen. In probably late November, we started getting orders from 
California and, and Delaware. And, you know, so I was very pleased to see that. Do so. you see it becoming more global? I mean, right now it's it's the women in Bengal. Do you mm-hmm. see it spreading to other parts of India or elsewhere in the world? I would love that. Uh, I love it to be uh, any of the wonderful crafts in India. But, you know, there's gorgeous things being done in this country. There's gorgeous things. I think about the weavers in Kentucky and, and even in Missouri. I've been meeting a few people who do wonderful things. And uh, if anyone is interested in um, selling through this particular site, it's called Arta Weavers. A R T A. I'm very, very happy to support any anybody who's doing this traditional work and would like to get a bigger audience for it. Now, you you weren't there to do this. You were there on the Fulbright Scholarship to research a mm-hmm. book, which is tentatively called Green Chilies and Other Imposters. Right. Tell us <laughs> quickly about that before we close. Right. So, you, you know, you think of India, you might think of hot food, but it might surprise people to know that chilies came, of course, from uh, South America. And they came to India to the coast um, of Goa on the southwest coast of India, and it came with Vasco da Gama. And when the chilies hit India, they went everywhere. And of course they did, because they're easy to grow. They, they flavored food very inexpensively. And they were sort of an imposter to the cuisine, though now it, it's hard to tell that. Most Indians would say chilies have always been here. Uh, I also see lots of food trails around the world that have been taken into different cultures and through the ingenuity of people in those cultures they've made those foods their own if you think about tomatoes which were south american when they came into italy well you wouldn't really think of italian food without tomato sauce maybe you wouldn't think about potatoes in certain cultures they also did not come from the east part of the world uh, or any part in the old world it came from south america as well so when the great exchange happened after Columbus in 1492. It, it was a big shift in the world of food because that suddenly food went everywhere, from everywhere to everywhere. And so a lot of cultures incorporated foods that were basically not from there, which I'm tongue-in-cheek calling an imposter, and made them their own. And those stories tell you the history of the world if you really look at those. So that's what I was researching. So uh, Chile's arrived on the southwest corner of India, which mm-hmm. is a, pretty much as far from Bengal as, yes. as you can get. Mm-hmm. And so the Indian food that we have, like, things like vindaloo, are they from the south? So the hotter dishes tend to come from the south. Tend to come from the south, right. And they're more milder spices in mm-hmm. the north. And a lot of spices all over India because we have so many. Um, but that doesn't mean they're hot. It just means they're multidimensional, uh, multi-layered, and they have a very nuanced ways of using spices all over India. It's just that once you add a chili to it, it's sort of sometimes, if it's not used in a knowledgeable way, it just becomes hot and right. you don't notice the rest. But it, traditionally and historically, Indian food wasn't that hot. We had the long pepper, but we didn't have chilies. What other imposters do you find in Bengali cuisine? Oh, potatoes are there, <laughs> for sure. And tomatoes are there. You know, so we have a lot of imposters. And I also, you know, uh, am sort of alluding to the fact that I look like I belong in India, but I'm, I'm actually kind of boomeranging around the world. And I'm a bit of an imposter when I wander the streets there. So uh, I I see that history is, is just 
it's so pervasive. You know, we're, we're such an interconnected world now. So I see this book as a journey back to my family's homeland for the food, <laughs> which I'm always happy to taste. Do you think uh, we're in danger of losing fruit traditions as the world becomes more McBurgered? Well, I think that that's an interesting question because that was my original premise that, you know, some of these foodways are going to be lost. If you, if you take a carefully calibrated recipe from Bengal, it's going to have a long history of body balance, not only internal, but body balance with external weather and um, how it makes you feel after you've digested it. It's very delicate. And if you um, change those base ingredients, is it still in balance? Is it still going to give you that feeling of well-being? So if you lose how food is produced, change how food is produced, which is happening all over the world, or export things and import other things to substitute, um, you start to lose an entire orientation of a culture and how food ends up on the plate every day just by looking down. There's so many decisions that are made by your culture that brings that food to your plate. And if you start changing that, you can lose traditions. It doesn't mean you will. But you can. My second act guest today has been Nina Mukherjee first and now writer, chef, entrepreneur, and a member of the Globally Curious, like <laughs> me. You can find out more about her new venture, Arta Weavers, at artaweavers.com, which is A-R-T-A weavers.com. And her new book, provisionally called Green Chilies and Other Imposters, will be hopefully published in 2021. Thank you so much, Nina. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts, and I'm Diana Moxon. As usual, we'll end the show with a look at some of the events that are coming up over the next few days in and around Columbia. Now, tonight's show, as I say with a caveat of they may or may not be on, I know a couple of things have already been cancelled because of the weather, so do check. But if things go ahead, then here we go. We are into week three of the sixth annual Missouri Fest with events at both the Blue Note and Rose Music Hall tonight and tomorrow night. Tonight, the Blue Hosts, sorry, the Blue Note hosts the Missouri Funk Fest featuring the Mobile Funk Unit, the Fried Craw Daddies, Cat Daddies Funky Fuzz Bunker Band, and the Funky Butt Brass Band. Tonight's show starts at 9 p.m. if it goes ahead, and tickets cost from $10. And at Rose Music Hall, tonight's the night for the Missouri Hip Hop Fest with Steady P and DJ Muff, Van Ghost, Sergio Slayer, Reese Young, and Landolin. You'll need $8 to get in, and the hip hop starts at 9 p.m. At Talking Horse Theatre, Pace Youth Theatre is taking over the house this weekend for their production of Willy Wonka Jr. There are shows at 7pm tonight and tomorrow, plus 2pm matinees on Saturday and Sunday. And tickets for that, those shows are all available on the door. And tonight is the third Friday Contra Dance, hosted by Mid-Missouri Traditional Dancers at the Ballroom Academy of Columbia on Peach Tree Drive. Beginners' lessons start at 7 and there is live music all evening from Snorty Horse featuring Dave Parra. No experience is necessary and it is a child-friendly family event. One event that was going to be on tonight that I know has been postponed until next Friday is the Columbia Art League's opening reception for their food art show, which this year is called Taste. It'll be on next Friday instead from 6 till 8 and will be free and open to all, but not on tonight. But do check with 
various venues because I think some of those events uh, tonight may not happen. Tomorrow morning, the Boone History and Culture Centre continues its Meet the Author series with Arthur Mayhoff talking about his book, Explore Missouri's German Heritage. Arthur's talk starts at 10.30 and there is no cost to attend. At Skylark Bookshop, there is a Saturday Storytime special with first responders and they'll be there at 1 o'clock. Tomorrow at 3pm, the Odyssey Chamber Music Series holds its Kids at Heart Global Express Children's Concert, which is presented in collaboration with the Mid-Missouri Music Teachers Association. The concert was postponed last Saturday because of the weather, so hopefully this one will go ahead this week, and it'll be at First Baptist Church and includes African dancing by Wantanara, and for those who come early at 2pm, an instrument petting zoo. It's a free concert, but donations are gladly accepted. At the Jorgensen Fine Arts Gallery at Moberly Area Community College in Moberly, there is an opening reception for an exhibit by artist Jared Van Cleve, and that's at 5pm tomorrow night. And tomorrow night at the Blue Note, they are hosting the Missouri Bluegrass Fest featuring one-way traffic, Mercer and Johnson, the Match Sellers, the Bluegrass Martins, and the Riverbend Bluegrass Band. And that show gets underway at 8pm, and tickets cost $8. And over at Rose Musical tomorrow night, the Missouri Rock Fest is on stage with Last American Cowboy, Troy, Dark Below and In Search of a Legend. I love all the band names. That show gets underway at 9pm and entrance is $6. Sunday afternoon at 5pm Rose Music Hall is hosting a fundraiser for Yarl Rock featuring DJ Note Girl. The event is called the Grrr, Grown Up Rock Retreat Showcase. I guess that's the acronym. And it is a weekend version of their summer camp, except it's for adults. So like the junior version, adult participants have 48 hours to form bands, learn an instrument and write an original song. The show starts at 5pm and $7 gets you in. And in case you are wondering, Yarl Rock is a non-profit dedicated to empowering girls, women, gender expansive and or trans youth through creative experience expression, musical exploration and social agency. So that'll be a fun event. Tuesday morning at 10am, the Museum of Art and Archaeology hosts its twice per month informal sketch group. Drawing pads, pencils and supplies are provided free of charge and no advanced RSVP or previous experience is necessary. You can just show up and start drawing. Tuesday evening, the Daniel Boone Regional Library welcomes award-winning Brazilian storyteller Antonio Rocha for a performance of Tales from across Africa and that event starts at 5.30. Next Thursday, January the 23rd, there is a grand opening at the State Historical Society of Missouri's Center for Missouri Studies and that's on Elm Street for their new Music in Missouri exhibit which tracks Missouri's role in shaping American sound. The reception is from 4 till 6 next Thursday and it is free and open to all and finally in Jefferson City next Thursday, Scene 1 Theatre opens its two-week run of the play Other Desert Cities. Evening showtime is 7.30 and tickets are $15 and I guess I'll be going to see that with my good friend Monica. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my lovely gal pal, Monica Palmer, sitting in for Mike Hagen on the Sound Engineering Board. We'll be back next week with more arts chat and sneaky peeks behind the Mid-Missouri Arts Curtain. Until then, you know what to do. Stay arty, Columbia.